Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And when we talk about food, we also talk a lot about the issue of hunger, which of course is at the core of Shore strength. I'm on with my sister, Debbie Shore, who's in our Washington, D.C. Uh, headquarters vicinity, uh, not actually in our headquarters, and Kathy Eden, who was last with us March of 2017. Boy, was the world a different uh, place and time then, Kathy. Uh, Kathy is a professor of sociology and public policy at Princeton University, a leading poverty researcher, uh, and of course, incredibly well known as the author of $2 a Day, Living on Virtually Nothing in America. Kathy, we're so grateful to have you back. It's great to be back. Uh, when I looked uh, at our last conversation, I couldn't believe it was back in March of uh, 2017. And uh, one of the things you had talked about on that uh, in that conversation, uh, you'd actually quoted a young woman uh, who had experienced hunger. And she said, it feels like you want to be dead because it's peaceful when you're dead. And I was thinking about that as I was reading this morning's New York Times, and there's a front page story about President Biden. The headline is Biden's effort to combat hunger marks a profound change. Yeah. And it quotes Jason a mom. Yeah. Yeah. And it quotes a mom saying, with the benefits, uh, we're pretty well off. And I thought, gosh, what a absolutely stunning contrast from it feels like you want to be dead uh, to with these benefits we're pretty well off. Now we know there's a lot in between uh, and there's still a, a lot of work to do, but um, I, I wanted to just start by having you comment on what's going on real time right now. The president uh, is is getting credit for some really transformational efforts around the issue of hunger and poverty and a child tax credit, which I wanna dig into in a couple of minutes, yeah. that impacts child poverty. Uh, what's your take on, on where we are as a country and how far we've come? Well, uh, the the tax credit is sort of crystallizes a lot of a lot of it. Uh, it is it is as if um, we have turned the conversation on poverty that we had leading up to the 1996 welfare reform bill on its head, um, and maybe even 400 years of history of how we treat the poor and think about the poor. So those are big statements. But, um, you know, one, one other woman quoted in that DeParle piece said, um, I wish that the politicians would have fixed something like this. I wish the politicians would have figured out before the pandemic that we were in need. Um, I think what, what um, where we were, you know, with um, welfare reform 1996 is we were, we were, as a country, um, more afraid of dependency than anything else. Uh, we were terrified uh, that we, with very little evidence, by the way, that we had created a class of dependence, uh, that we had uh, created a, a safety net system, both both cash welfare and food stamps, that encouraged um, uh, discouraged marriage and discouraged work, and um, you know the American public and many politicians, including Democrats, were ready to try something new. And so the idea was um, to withdraw the, you know, withdraw the, the safety net um, to essentially eliminate the entitlement. I mean, the, the only entitlement left 
is the food stamp program, right? That was to withdraw all of the other entitlements, give states flexibility and uh, move the support away from the categorically needy to the working poor with the idea, you know, that we had to force uh, these this potential dependent class to work. So what we have now, of course, is a is a very um, a very different story. Uh, the pe pandemic has revealed, uh, as DeParle's piece also revealed, uh, this sea of need that was sort of sitting underneath uh, underneath the radar uh, for the last 25 to 30 years since we reformed the welfare system. That was sort of steadily uh, growing worse in some ways and leaving kids without critical benefits. And then suddenly we have a, 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 a raft of new policies we would never have believed possible uh, a year and a half or two years ago uh, that looked like they could very well become permanent. And of course, you mentioned uh, the emergency uh, additions to the food stamp program, which are reimbursing families for what they have to spend extra now that their kids aren't in school um, and, the and the child tax credit. So when you say the pandemic revealed a sea of need, um, do you, in your gut, do you think this uh, transformation that we're talking about, this uh, complete turning the poverty conversation on its head, as you said, uh, would that not have happened but for the pandemic or was it just a matter of time? You know, I think it probably was just a matter of time uh, because the kinds of decisions that we've been making over the last 30 years in particular are very costly. And in the end, we would have run smack dab into those costs uh, because um, things were getting, you know, worse and worse, especially with the cash welfare system. I mean, it is, you know, it's it's picked up a little bit now during the recession, but it had just fallen off the cliff. So uh, eventually, I think we would have come, uh, we would run into the problem problem in ways that would make make us rethink this approach of, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, Big sticks. <laughs> and when you say the decisions were costly, uh, what what are, what costs do you mean? Well, so let's take uh, Tabitha, you you uh, the young woman who said she wanted to be dead because she was so hungry. Um, you know, you take that problem and you multiply it across children. Uh, that multiplies across generations, and you have a, a, a you know you have a very expensive. Uh, you've created a very expensive problem. Problem. You've created a generations of children who aren't getting the basics that they need to thrive, and that affects the whole economy. So that you're saying that would have caught up with us. It probably would have caught up with us, but you know, it's just I'm not sure we would have ever had all of these things at the same time. We might have had more incremental changes here and there, but the idea that you could kind of turn a page um, on this problem and in, in the kind of fundamental way that we're thinking about doing. Uh, may well be a pandemic effect. You know, are you are, are you surprised that this has come to pass with the, in effect, razor thin majority that the president has in both the House and the Senate? I mean, it's a it's a remarkable change in the conversation, uh, and to me, all the more remarkable because the Congress and the elected officials who are going to decide these things are so evenly divided. Yeah, you know, the, the public is not as evenly divided, though. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of people who really feel that, uh, that you know, things like the child allowance are, are needed. It's a very popular option. You know, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Um, 
what you hear Republicans saying are the same old tropes uh, they've been saying for 400 years. In the in the story today on food security, uh, someone from the uh, American Enterprise Institute was quoted as saying uh, that programs like SNAP, um, you know, can be seen uh, to threaten, uh, you know, threaten the um, uh, the attractiveness of marriage and work. Imagine saying to yourself, "Gee." Honey, we're we're getting you know a little bit more in food stamps now. Why don't let's just quit our jobs and live off food stamps? Uh, so, so you hear these same tropes uh, that that by the way we know um, we know there are there's really no evidence for even even places that have uh, that is, especially not for food stamps. It's just not a plausible narrative. You can't you know pay your rent with food stamps. You can't buy socks and underwear for your kids. Uh, with your Well, Kathy, before I ask my sister to jump in here, um, let's talk about this child tax credit because you had referenced, uh, you know, in general, how a lot of what we're seeing right now just, you know, was unimaginable um, a certain number of years ago. Some of it was unimaginable just a certain number of months ago. I, I put the child tax credit in that, um, in that category, uh, this notion that uh, families could get, it's, and it's been um, kind of described as the equivalent of universal basic income for families getting between $3,000 and $3,600 for a child, uh, it could make an enormous, enormous difference. And nobody really saw this coming. From a, um, I guess from an economic point of view and a kind of a sociological point of view, uh, what difference do you see this child tax credit making? And uh, what do we have to do to make sure that everybody who's eligible for it and needs it actually gets it. One of the things that uh, really weighs on me is the idea that just because a law is passed doesn't mean that it benefits everybody that's supposed to benefit from it. There's families who uh, maybe have not filed taxes because they haven't had income in the past. Maybe they're not in the banking system. Um, and, and to me, that suggests a role possibly for organizations like Share Our Strength. Uh, yeah. But what, do you, what impact do you think it's gonna have and what are we gonna have to do to make it real? Well, uh, you know, let, let's go pre-1996, back to the old welfare system. In the old welfare system, uh, if you could say that, if you could show that you had need, that your income was below X number of dollars, and of course that varied by states with, this, with the southern states having much lower benefits than the northern states, you were legally entitled to a check from the government. But if you worked that check would be reduced for about a dollar for every dollar you got from the government. Thus, this, the perception, uh, that's the perception that welfare and work were opposed to one another. So my first book was on that topic. I traveled the country interviewing hundreds of single mothers about how they made that tra trade off. So what the child tax credit does is the opposite. Uh, first of all, it's work neutral. You get to keep it and um, you, you can work. And uh, so this is, fundamental, this is a fundamental break with the past, right? That we say, we're going to give you income and we're not going to tax your work. So uh, this is a pro-work policy, um, but for kid, you know, parents of children, there's a little bit of a cushion there in case a child is sick or there's an elderly family member that needs attention. So that's the first thing is that it's essentially pro work. And when you um, combine it 
with the earned income tax credit, which is of course increases with the amount that you work, um, the, the policies taken together are very pro-work. Uh, second, there's a little bit of a magic in, in how these programs go together. So the earned income tax credit, which is um, basically uh, uh, kind of a, um, it, it makes up the difference between what a low-wage worker's earnings are and the poverty line. Uh, so that check comes once a year um, at tax time. And uh, in our work we've, that we've done on, on that program, we see that suddenly families have a surplus, they can think ahead, they can plan for the future, and they deploy much of the money toward their long-term goals but they're still running uh, in the red most months. And that's where the child tax credit comes in. It gives you that floor month to month so that you can stay in the black and, uh, but still uh, have this moment where you uh, at tax time can say, okay, can I make a down payment on that used car so I can get the better job in the suburbs? Uh, so that's that's a, a, a very cool, maybe a little geeky <laughs> talk about how these things work together. But, but maybe equally important is that it's dignifying. So past welfare programs dignified. Uh, they made you feel like scum. You almost had to trade your citizenship for a little bit of money from the government. And the messaging around the child tax credit is hey, you're just like every other American family. You are providing a valuable service to society. Um, you're, you're raising the next generation. We need children to support our aging population. And uh, we appreciate that it's going to cost you to do it. And so we want to support you. So it's inherently, uh, whereas you know the pre-1996 program uh, was stigmatizing and uh, othering, this is dignifying and including. And on this issue of, uh, let, let me just add one other thing, Deb, on this issue of what we need to do to make sure people get oh, it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm sure you're you're more familiar with the EITC track record than I am. I've seen something like, uh, you know, maybe 75 to 80% of those eligible actually yeah. get it, which I think is a, is a pretty good number, but we could still do better. What do we have to do to make sure that this benefit becomes real for people? Yeah, so um, we would expect take up to be about in the range that, that it is for the EITC. Maybe um, because it's, it's the same mechanism, right? You go to the H&R block or you step file and, and uh, that's how you sort of enroll. Um, you know, poor people really know about how to so because we instituted the modern EITC uh, in the mid-1990s along with welfare reform, it is now well known among most poor communities that if you work, you're gonna get money back from the government at tax time, and it's gonna be because you're raising children. So uh, that's why whenever you go into any neighborhood, uh, especially neighborhoods where there are uh, lots of folks in retail and other lower wage work, you see Jackson Hewlett, Tax Prep, H&R um, Block, you see every little bodega saying uh, taxes in the window. Uh, this has become a, a big industry. In fact, uh, last I checked, H&R Block was the biggest part-time employer in the country. 
so, you know, we've kind of given the mar we've given over responsibility for administering these programs uh, to places like H&R Block. And uh, it is in their interest to get everyone enrolled because that's how their business model works. So that's why the take of the EITC is so high is we've, we've uh, created uh, a market uh, for these for these for-profit vendors to go out and, and get people enrolled and, and get them the refunds that are coming because it's beneficial to them. Yeah. Um, but they also take a $200 cut off the average check and that's not so good. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but the mechanism is the same here, and uh, we would expect um, high but not universal take up. So, there's definitely room for nonprofits to play a role. Many nonprofits run uh, tax prep sites that are free and don't cost um, applicants anything. Uh, and so, those kinds of efforts should still be encouraged. Outreach can uh, in the neighborhood, um, I think, is. is very, very important. Maybe particularly in more isolated rural areas in the South where we know um, hardship is the highest uh, and, in the, and in some of the mountain states, uh, especially uh, Native nations. Um, those will be crucial areas in which to do that. Got it. Debbie Shore, thanks for being so patient and letting your brother yeah. talk so much. Of course, of course. No, I, it, you know, as you both were talking, you were kind of addressing a couple of questions in my mind, but Kathy, one of them just to push on that you just raised was, you know, we've got this really diverse and growing network of supporters at Share of Strength and, you know, they leverage their talents and their strengths in a variety of ways, mostly around fundraising and, uh, you know, awareness generating and bringing new people into our network. And the mo you know, one of the most common questions we get that we struggle with is how to engage them more deeply into the community, uh, into their local communities. And, you know, you're, you're, the way you're talking about um, people being able to access, you know, H&R um, Block and, and ways to do their taxes. I'm wondering if there's anything that, you know, in this category that we can think about to offer to our network of supporters to get them involved in, in through a volunteer effort, because yeah. it's, it's kind of the one thing that we're just, we don't have a lot to, you know, have them do on the ground. And this sounds like yeah. this could possibly be something. Yeah, so tax season was delayed this year. Right. <laughs> there's there's still time, uh, although lots of lots of people who are going to claim the tax credit do so right away in February because they really need the money. Um, but it, it's worth it, Yes, it's definitely worth thinking about. Could I volunteer? Almost every jurisdiction in a large every large city uh, has places where you can get trained up and volunteer as a tax preparer. I've done it. Um, I've had whole classes. Uh, uh, when I was teaching at Harvard, uh, my entire policy class uh, signed up and we all did taxes together in a basement um, in, uh, in Dorchester, uh, neighborhood in Boston. So uh, it's just a great way of meeting people. Um, they're very excited. There's a sense of anticipation. And, and it's very one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I mean, it's very- Very one-on-one, -on -one. Uh, yeah. Yep. You're, you're talking to people, you're getting to know them for that little bit of time. I think it's- Yeah. It's an exciting. The, the other thing that you touched on that I just wanted to follow up on when you're we're talking about this moment in time that we have with this, you know, unprecedented legislation um, yeah. with the relief package and all the things that are part of it. And number one, how do we take advantage of it? But then even beyond that, and I'm probably getting way ahead of myself on this, but- how do we as an organization with all of our influencers, how do we think about helping to make those permanent and the 
you know, the, the messages that you were just talking about, how um, the child tax credit is a is a pro work policy. I mean, there are certain messages coming out of this that, you know, we could help, you know, to 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 get people excited about making these permanent. So you would hate, you know, I would hate to see this incredible opportunity change, you know, in two years or four years. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm so excited. Here, here's why I'm so excited about this new approach. So this new approach, in you, you know, with both food stamps, but especially the child tax credit, the message we're sending to people who are struggling is, we trust you, <laughs> right? Um, you're one of us. You're you're part of us, and uh, we want to support you. Yeah, like an equalizer. Yeah. yeah, it is literally the opposite of the message we've been sending for 400 years. Now, we know from the exemplary work of um, uh, Sendel Molly Nathan and Eldar Shafir in their famous book, Scarcity, that when people are poor, all of their attention, and they have too little, right? All of their cognitive capacities get focused on surviving. And they become expert at surviving. And that's the story we told in $2 a day. But they become very inexpert in thinking in the kinds of ways that lead to mobility from poverty. So you're in the tunnel. You know, you're focusing on survival and there's no chance to sort of pop up and say, where am I going? How do I get out of this tunnel? How can I how can I look ahead? And so uh, this new policy regime is much more of the latter. You provide a floor. So somebody, uh, you know, as Billy quoted the New York Times article saying, so someone has a floor. Um, they're feeling like they can get that pizza. And not be shamed at the at the you know um, when they run out of the food stamps at the at the checkout, they they've got that and and I believe that um, if I were you know had a crystal ball, um, I would predict that this kind of stability, providing this kind of stability, is really going to enable people to get out of the tunnel in the ways uh, that lead to the kind of long term thinking. Um, that can uh, that can aid in mobility for poverty. So uh, that's why I'm so excited about about this, this new regime and and how do we how do we make it more permanent? Um, I think the universal nature of uh, the program is very important. It's near 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 universal. It'll cover the vast majority of children, uh, but not quite all. Still on the ground, it appears to be universal. I think people are going to like that a lot. And, and again, this messaging is going to be really critical. A, uh, we know it's not non-work. In all of the uh, other countries that have child allowances, uh, the results say, uh, the results are sort of like, well, it may be a tiny decrease, but other results show actually an increase in work. You know, so in $2 a day, we write about Ray McCormick, who lost her job because she couldn't afford to gas in right? She didn't have the floor. And so now that Ray can put gas in her car, it's, uh, it's fully possible that we'll see not less work after the floor. So I think the pro work. Part of this the- you were saying that at some point earlier on, you were saying that there's a sense that the old, you know, the old ways, we have to change the way we're doing this. It's not working. So this new feeling that, um, you know, oh, right. this, this revenue that we're, you know, the this economic boost we're giving folks is not a negative, it's a positive. 
and yeah. it's it's going to be seen differently and felt differently. And uh, yeah. so I'm just wondering what the root of that is. Well, you know, I would say first, Europe has been doing it for a while. So I think of the idea as an oldie but a goodie. Um, and we've got a lot of evidence now uh, from other countries that it's that it's very effective and is not anti-root work and might even be pro-work. Mm -hmm. uh, second, we've got people like Rosa Delario, Congresswoman from Connecticut, who has tirelessly promoted this idea, you know, for two decades. And then more recently has been joined by Sherrod Brown and Mike Bennett, who worked tirelessly for the tax credit. Uh, we spent a lot of time um, with the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, which has really pushed uh, this idea. Uh, we saw sparks of interest from several leading Republicans. I mean, they're digging their heels in now, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, again, our country has become so deep, deeply unequal and the, and the low-wage labor market has become so frayed uh, that we just, you know, many, many hardworking people just aren't making it. You know, the formula kind of broke down. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you can be working and poor, that you could be wanting a job but only able to get part-time hours, the fact that if you have a job at a retail clothing store, you might only get five hours next week. Uh, even though you've had to say that you're available uh, for you know, any number of hours. So there's, mm -hmm. there's so many ways in which the, uh, I, I like to say that it, with welfare reform, we put all of our eggs into the basket of low wage work. And then uh, using the, you know, the metaphor of, of the Easter season, uh, we are in here on Easter Monday, but the bottom of that basket uh, fell out and mm -hmm. uh, people could no longer earn their way to a minimally decent life in many cases. Kathy, one one of the things that I want to that, that's kind of implicit in this conversation and in Sheriff Strength's interest in um, the child tax credit that we've been talking about uh, is that it will have a direct uh, impact on the childhood hunger that we've been so focused on. Yeah. Um, but I want to make that explicit if if in fact that is true and you're mm -hmm. a, a good one. You talked earlier about the interplay between earned income tax credit and uh, uh, the child tax credit. Um, we've talked about yeah. SNAP. Uh, how how direct will the impact be in your judgment? So um, one of the chief insights we've gleaned over the past 20 or 30 years is that how you package a program really matters. So we know this from behavioral economics. Uh, is it a windfall or a paycheck? Uh, is it a bequest from your beloved aunt? You know, all of these, uh, we've also learned this from economic sociology, which is the sociology uh, cousin of behavioral economics. The way we, the way we frame things determines how um, the money is spent. So the fact that this is called a child tax credit is very important. And the fact that, um, you know, uh, um, our, good, our good friend from, uh, Utah, Mitt Romney has said, we need people to have kids. This is a social good. That's a very important message. And our research on the EITC uh, offered uh, fairly strong evidence that because parents perceive the EITC as for the kids, 
that really shaped how they spent it. So you see a very child focused log logic. Uh, at, what we did is we we um, we hung out at H&R Block offices uh, during tax time, and then we followed filers through the six month anniversary of their receipt. And we saw this very child focused logic in how parents were spending their money. They were explicitly saying to themselves, how can I use this money to bolster my children's well-being? And of course, uh, a roof over one's head and food in the belly are foundational. So those are the first two things that parents are going to insist that their kids have. Yep, that's pretty powerful. Uh, you know, one other aspect that I wanted to ask you about um, in the Times today, it said that this was not just a pandemic response, but part of a campaign for racial justice. And in terms of who in America is yeah. disproportionately impacted um, by poverty. We've talked a lot about the impact on black and brown Americans. Um, your research probably substantiates that. What should we know about the connection between this and racial justice? I think uh, what we should know is that uh, the system that we had pre, you know, pre uh, this pre pre one point trillion one point nine trillion dollar package was deeply unequal. It deepened inequality between uh, white children and black and brown children, uh, especially with regard to the child tax credit. It was a, it was a race neutral policy that benefited um, uh, non-minorities more so than minorities. People who were left out, the neediest families were often black and brown. And what this does is, uh, this is another race neutral policy, but it disproportionately aids black and brown children. So uh, you've probably heard the same analysis of baby bond. Uh, same yep. logic follows. You can do something that's racially neutral, but if you pay attention to the design, you can still bring up African American and Latino children. And, and the reason for this is not like we're trying to cheat or give it give out, get over. You know, it's it's really that things were unfair before, and that's why white children were benefiting disproportionately. So, all we're doing here is we're we're uh, we're making these policies uh, more fair. Well, you know, I have a question that uh, I mean is a serious question. I don't want it to come across as facetious. Uh, what else do we have to fight for? Uh, we got a lot in this package and there's more coming. What else should we be uh, trying to get into public policy to really make the, you know, the promise of, of, of justice and equality and equity come true? Well, we've got to do a lot of the, uh, we've really got to focus on the low wage labor market and see what can be done to improve work. Uh, not just uh, the minimum wage, but um, what's stable, full-time work is very hard to get in a lot of places these days. Um, and we've got to take seriously the disincentives um, to employers for employing people full-time, full year. Uh, we have to be sensitive to the needs of communities where maybe there's only one uh, or two employers in town um, whose only whose, whose survival kind of depends on, um, on a low-wage labor force. So we, we have to we have to take care, uh, but we do have to solve these problems at the bottom of the labor market. Second, um, you know we have to 
take seriously um, the, the educational deficits in our schools. And uh, it's just unreal how um, unequal our, our education is. You know, we've, we're studying uh, two rural communities, one in um, uh, South Carolina and the, uh, sorry, one in uh, Mississippi Delta and the other in South Texas. Kids are going to school. They're graduating. Um, the school is often at the center of the community, uh, but uh, the quality of the education is so low that kids aren't scoring high enough on their ACT and SAT tests to get into um, competitive state colleges. So uh, that's that's an oldie but goodie. You know, yeah, that's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. And finally, we, you know, segregation. Uh, the reason we can get away with this kind of inequality in education is because we don't live in the same neighborhoods and we don't uh, access the same institutions. We spoke just two weeks ago with former Secretary of Education, John B. King, who talked about, you know, starting out as a teacher and then a middle school principal and ended up getting into policy work and ended up becoming, you know, New York State Commissioner of Education and then ultimately Secretary of Education, because he said just in the classroom, it was so obvious and compelling that at every juncture, the inequity was making the job impossible, you know, yeah. in terms of really being able to give kids what they what they needed. Um, Deb, I've got a couple of questions about what Kathy's working on now and might be writing next, but um, I wanted to make sure we got to any more questions you had before we wrap up. I, I was just trying to, um, I was gonna ask about priorities beyond any economic assistance, but I think you guys just addressed it, so. Kathy, what, uh, any current research that you're doing that you can tell us about? And uh, is there another book uh, in the pipeline? Yeah, so um, in partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, we've been um, uh, really trying to construct a 21st way of thinking about disadvantage. And, you know, back in the old days, we only had one tool, the poverty line. Uh, but now big data has brought us a wealth of tools we could never have dreamed of. And so um, we're using big data to try to identify using a, a multitude of indicators where the where disadvantage is most deeply felt in the United States. And surprise, surprise, for a longtime researcher of cities, uh, these places are mostly not urban, uh, but rural. And we've been going to these places. We've been hanging out, talking with folks. Um, participating in community events. Uh, we've learned a lot about the history of these places. We've visited archives. Um, I'm an expert on scouring historic newspapers. And uh, we're really trying to figure out where these, in these kind of forgotten places, interestingly, these were the very places that gave the war on poverty its face. So we've got, you know, the, the migrant fields of South Te Texas, the Cotton Belt and Appalachia. These are the places uh, that, that gave the war in poverty its face through the poverty tours of Johnson and Kennedy. And yet um, as uh, cities began to implode in the late 1960s, attention was turned away from these places and we've never really gone back to solve their problems. They remain the most disadvantaged places in the nation. So we've been tackling rural poverty it and learning a ton from the people that we've met in these communities, um, uh, from the mayor on down to the poorest citizen. So uh, that's what we're up to now. And we're, 
we're hoping to have a have a book in about a year and a half. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I say that because just several weeks ago, we convened our third annual Rural Child Hunger Summit to talk about the oh, special wow. needs of rural communities. Secretary Vilsack uh, spoke at it, um, and a number of other uh, rural experts. And I, and I think we're kind of aligned with you in uh, a sense of this is an area uh, has got to be of increasing focus. You know, one other thing I wanted to ask you is is we're you know kind of hopefully coming out of an era in in which people argued about whether facts are really even important things um and we've had so much division in your world in the in in the world of um poverty researchers and academics is there as much division or is there more of a um consensus around some of the things that you've described for us today oh the study of poverty was and is deeply politicized <laughs> uh talk about not being able to agree on facts uh, this has been very, very true of our field, and uh, there have been vigorous debates. Uh, not, not all of the uh, of the polite kind that academics sometimes have, um, but there's a sense in which uh, um, there's a sense there's a there's almost a desperation uh, that I see now in in the folks that are saying. You know, don't give them a cent. They're only gonna, they're only gonna, you know, become po- be, become dependents in the welfare hammock. There's almost a desperation in 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 you know pushing these claims. Um, you know, because because the evidence just really just isn't there that that actually um, creating a, a a floor of decency, of uh, you know foundation of decency under uh, under hardworking Americans uh, is, is going to somehow lead to a, a, a moral collapse. Uh, so, uh, you know, what do you what do you do to inoculate your own work from the the charge that it's political? Do you have to, um, you know, do you have to counter that, or you are you kind of conscious of and intentional uh, about uh, helping to convey yeah. that it's you know you're not necessarily just pushing a political agenda. This is actually based in research and fact. Yeah, you know, that's so important. I, I told my students today, um, well, we we have to have a reputation for being fair-minded, even-handed, and truth-tellers in order to be any good at our job. And so, you know, we always try to replicate any finding with every data source we can find. We look at administrative data, ethnographic data, historic data, we um, open up our files for review. People can rerun our results. Uh, we, um, you know, it's very, very important uh, that we beat up our own results. We try to prove that we're wrong. And that's, that's what's different about the academic enterprise. And, you know, for somebody at a policy school at a place like Princeton, uh, that's, that's crucial. Uh, so we really can't be uh, you know, if our results happen to align with a policy like the child tax credit, uh, we can speak to that and we can talk about why we think it's a good idea. Uh, but that really has to come from our research and not, well, we can't go out looking for <laughs> to cherry pick facts in order to support our our uh, our ideological aims. So uh, the best of academic research does not do that. 
Well, uh, no one's research is more respected than yours, Kathy, and uh, I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to be with us. Um, anything else yeah. at your end, Deb? Yeah, Kathy, I was just, um, I know we just asked you to do this podcast and you graciously said yes, but now I'm going to ask if at some point uh, when you have uh, a half an hour or so, if you would consider coming and speaking to our team, not in person necessarily, but even on Zoom, we've, we've got these monthly staff meetings and you know we'd love to have you know, people come on and talk about different issues. Every, you know, everything you talked about today, we could, you know, do it in another, you know, 20 minutes easily on every topic. So, yeah, that would, my, that would be great. My sister has a knack for asking these things publicly so people can't say no, Kathy. So, uh, <laughs> he's a smart one. Thank you. No, Thank you. Great. Thank you. This was so good. Thanks. Uh, we've been talking with Kathy Eden, who's one of the nation's leading poverty researchers and well known as the author of $2 a Day. Uh, living on virtually nothing in America. That came out in 2015. In 2017, uh, Kathy was one of our uh, earliest uh, first guests on uh, this podcast on Add Passion and Stir. One of the things you said back in 2017, uh, Kathy, that you've addressed so well here today was that, you know, what people want more than anything is dignity. Uh, and you said, yeah. but a lot of our social policies deny people that. Um, and I, you were so uh, helpful and illuminating early in this conversation and explaining why these new policies do offer that dignity. And it's given me another, uh, an additional reason to be really excited about them. So thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I guess we're going to have to wait. It sounds like a year and a half for your next book, but I know it'll be well worth it. Um, and thanks for the research you're doing. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. And on behalf of Debbie Shore and our team at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign, Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. You can go to addpassionandstir.com and find all of our previous episodes and you can rate them and rank them and subscribe and share them with friends. Um, we're grateful for you listening and grateful for engaging in this conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore.